All right, hey, 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 everybody. We are back again from the green room at Vintage Grace. It's time for another episode of the Text Lab. David Craw here with the one and only Will Watson. And Will, it's uh, it's a little cold outside. Dude, we were in Seattle a couple months ago, and it feels like we just walked right back into Seattle this morning. It is rainy. I'm wearing a jacket. Yep, I know. If if you notice, Crawl is may or may not be as cheery as his usual self. That is okay. But so I have one question, quick question for you though, Crawl. What percentage tax do you take on your kids' Easter candy? Ooh, it's got it's a fifty percent. It's a fifty percent tax. Yes. Okay. And and all you parents out there, it is okay to tax your kids. All right. There is nothing wrong with taxing your Easter candy or Christmas candy, whatever you enjoy. But yes, I think a couple days ago, I just found some Easter candy from last year. So it's candy time. It'll be here all year round. And uh, that's that's a great part about Easter and Easter candy. Um, Well, welcome to the text lab for our listeners who don't know. This is where every single week we do a deep dive into the text to help you prepare for life group this week. Our goal is simple, to help you be a disciple who makes disciples. So whether you're leading a group, just doing some diving into the text on your own, um, our hope is that this really helps you have a meaningful study and reflection about what God has said to us in his word. This week, we are in Revelation 4 and 5, and we are diving into the text. And Will, a lot to unpack here. We're not going to read the text this week um, because of its length, but um, we encourage you to do that on your own. But diving into this text, Will, just kind of help us out. What's kind of just the big idea that's going on in these verses? Yeah, we're moving into this uncovering, right? The uncovering of the plan of God, that God is the one who's uh, enthroned and he's over all of the earth, Um not just over all of the earth, but has a plan for the earth, mm. right? Like, I think that that's so important that it's not just that, okay, guys, like God is the God of the universe, but he's not this ideological being out there, um, but he actually interacts with his people and has a plan for his people. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And right off the bat here, you see this transition happen in the text. We've been in chapters two and three, really these epistles that were written to the church. They read very much like an Ephesians or a Colossians. And then now chapters four and five are going to read very differently, really emphasizing that uncovering that you were just talking about that is happening, uncovering God's plan, uncovering the revelation of Christ. And so that's just kind of an exegetical tool to notice whenever you're reading scripture, pay attention to the genre that it is in. Pay attention to the way that it is written. Uh, the way that scripture is written is often telling you something significant about its meaning. Yeah. And, and then we move into this, like speaking of good exegetical tools, we see, see and behold, right? And this right is right off the bat in verse one, right off the bat in verse one. And like, we see this as a major theme in the book of revelation. You have time and time and time again, Behold and seeing occurring over probably 70-ish times combined, Um, which that is another thing. If you're continually seeing words pop up or if you're seeing repetition, saying, okay, I should probably like look into this. I should highlight this because... The, what what the writer's typically doing is he's highlighting some sort of importance here. And the importance that we see John highlighting is just that, man, um, people want to, like, worship and, and understanding this text here is... Uh, God opening, he's he's calling us to see and experience 
him. Um, that as, as the old Testament readers and even like new Testament readers, um, would have had scripture like read over them. There's Mm. an experiential factor that takes place with God, um, that we see here. That's like, see and behold again, as he's uncovering his plan, you're a part of this plan. Yeah. Like he's, he's actually doing something physically for the people there. Um, and honestly, throughout the book of Revelation, like in specifically in Revelation four and five, Daniel seven is such this highlight, right? So it's, we want to say like, we want you to have the option to open up Daniel seven, um, which I realize like it can be super confusing, um, but even just like a textual tool of saying like, actually like noticing Babylon and Daniel is going to have a lot of similarities to revel uh to rome and revelation um and 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 honestly just like trying to highlight and pick and say oh what is god doing at the grand scheme of things in those two texts which is so good because thinking about a first century reader of this text they would have immediately thought about daniel 7 when they read revelation 4 so that's helpful for us thousands of years later to recognize how in their minds they would have immediately thought of uh, Daniel 7. And I even think about here when these words see and behold are used, they would have immediately thought about John 1 and John the Baptist saying, see and behold Jesus. And now again, there's this call to see and behold Jesus again. So as good students of the text, just noticing those things, thinking about what that would have been like for that first century reader would have been really helpful. And so immediately in verse two, there's this throne room depiction that's being described. The first century reader would have thought about Revelation 7 or John 1, but they also would have immediately thought about the throne room and the temple that was in Jerusalem, um, which was destroyed in 70 AD. But the layout that is described here, very similar to that temple where at the inner center part of the temple is the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could come and visit and be in the presence of God. And so this Uh, courtroom scene, this throne room scene was laid out in a very similar way to that temple. And so there's really just this emphasis on the holiness of God in the throne room, the same way there was in the Holy of Holies. They would have made that connection in their minds and that would have been what came to their thoughts uh, process immediately. It was just this reverence before God that's being depicted in the throne room. And then that continues verse four that describes this throne room having Jasper and Carnelian. That's this reference back to Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28, um, where they would go to the mountain of God, the holy mountain where the temple used to stand. And that would have been another callback and reference point to reverence and a holy place for the original reader. So really, there's just this point as John's depicting this scene of just recognizing the uncovering that's happening and recognize the holiness and the reverence in this throne room before the throne room of God. Yeah, and you see the second part of verse three, uh, a rainbow around the throne. Again, like this is the throne radiating God's glory. It is more a reflection of, you see, like just the glory of God revealing, right? Whether you're taking that from like a Genesis account or you're taking that from an Ezekiel account, you're looking at this and you're saying, oh my goodness, it's revealing the glory and radiating the glory of who God is. Is And then you see in verse four, um, this turn to the 24 thrones and elders. Um, And man, like a a few things that I think are important to note is like we see 12 being an important number in scripture. You see the 12 tribes of um, 
of Israel. You see uh, 12. You see the disciples. You see, like, this is a very important number that's used throughout Scripture. And, And really, like, what we're getting at is we don't really know a whole lot about the mm. who these elders are and like a good principle to have like whatever we think about scripture is we're not trying in the same way that like whenever we're having real conversations with yet to believe um we're not trying to answer questions that they're not asking we're not going to try and answer questions that scripture isn't showing us mm. we're not trying to say like okay well actually you know what what was Jesus like when he was between being a carpenter and being 12 years old? Like, we don't know. And honestly, like, that's okay because scripture's not trying to answer that question. Um, so we don't need to try and take guesses or like throw ideas there. Actually, it's just a good principle for interpretation. And I think that is a fantastic interpretive tool. Uh, to have in your exegetical toolbox as you read scripture is just to say, okay, what question is scripture answering here? And what scripture, what question is scripture not answering here? So let me not try and force it to answer a question that it's not answering. And that, that's where a lot of revelation interpretation can go astray is when you try to make the text say things and answer questions that it's never was trying to ask or answer in the first place. Yeah. And so like, what is happening here in verse four? Uh, again, like God is enthroned. He is eternal and he, his will will be accomplished. Um, this is before the judgments are about to begin as we're going to talk about the seals in just a second. This is suggesting what, uh, will come is not happening outside of God's control, right? Like this is the King enacting. He's not this nominal far away God, but he's actually has this plan for his people and for the entirety of the earth. It's so good. And then in verse six, there's these four creatures, uh, with eyes all around them. They are around the throne room and, Um, Once again, this imagery of animals and um, just this depiction of all of creation around the throne room. Um, Readers, this wouldn't have landed weird on them. Think about kind of ancient Egypt and all the very vivid imagery of animals and all of the created world that was kind of full of um, their artistic descriptions. And um, you see those often on tombs or in pyramids, things like that. That would have also been very uh, prevalent in the first century world. There would have just been depictions and drawings of all the created world. So that's kind of the main point here with these four creatures is that um, this is all of the created world under the rule and reign of Christ. There's a possible Ezekiel connection back to these four creatures, which just goes back to Ezekiel 1, 4 through 14 and Ezekiel 10, 12 through 15 as well. In the Ezekiel scene of the throne room, um, this is part of God's greater judgment on the world, which I think is a piece here that could be being linked. Here is coming judgment. Um, Jesus is being unveiled. He's being uncovered. And there's a judgment that is going to happen and going to begin. And then you see these creatures fall down at the throne and start to worship. Yeah, you see the creatures, these four creatures, um, and it might look like, right? Like we, again, like so much of this is us trying to figure out how do we handle all of this, right? But in verse eight, you see this movement of, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Mm. Now, 
I don't know about you, David, but that was a song I sing often growing <laughs> up, right? Like when I became a believer in college, this was one of the bangers out, right? No, but honestly, like this is referencing just the glory of which God operates and functions. And he is the one who is holy. He is the Lord Almighty. And, and I think this is kind of cool, right? Like when we think about who was and is and is to come, referencing back to like who Jesus says he is, referencing back to God, uh, the I am statements, right? Like referencing even, I mean, shoot, if we're tracing this thing back Old Testament, like you're referencing back to like, I am who I am. Mm -hmm. It's referencing mm -hmm. God is the same. He is unchanged. He is still just as worthy to be worshiped in the midst of the Old Testament as he is here in the book of John and here in our life today. Yep. He is still holy. He is still working his plan and he is good. So good. Because I think those the response of those creatures shows us and the response of the elders, what what must our response be when we recognize the holiness of God, when we recognize his rule, his reign, his judgment, it's to fall on our knees in worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But the story and narrative doesn't continue there. We go into chapter five, um, where John says that he saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And so you see these scrolls immediately in this picture in chapter five. And the scroll was um, something that would have been common to write different royal documents on. Uh, writing on scrolls was kind of a new thing still in the first century, some advancing technology that was happening there. Um, so no tablets yet or what? <laughs> there was no uh, different type of tablets in the first century. Um, but what was happening was often royal documents were written on scrolls. So once again, there's reference to the royal rule and reign of Jesus, this royal courtroom, this royal throne room scene that is being played out. Um, it's a really depiction of God's royal plan and his rule and reign. And tell us about those seals, Will. There's seven of them. Yeah. They're sealed. There's seven of them, uh, and that's a that's a really important number. And and again, not to be confused, we're not talking about seals that are outside of Oracle Park right now, swimming around in the ocean. All right, we are talking about a completely different type of seal. Um, but seven, meaning uh, that the scrolls were unable to be opened. They were correct. sealed with with a yes. seal. Exactly. There you go. Sealed with the seal. That is good language skills right there, girl. Um, no, but exactly. Like these seals were closed. They were unable to be opened. Yep. Um, and so this is another occurrence. The seven that we're talking about here, this is another really important um, biblical number. It's a biblical number of completeness, um, especially as we're thinking about like God opening up and unveiling to us the... Um, the plan of God, right? Like we said that that's kind of this movement we start to see. And it's like, oh, the seven seals are actually just kind of this unveiling of the plan of God, right? Like seven. Um, yeah. So ultimately what you have is to be sealed with the seven seals is to indicate God's complete edict for the cosmos. So like what God is doing in the entirety of the world, this is really what's taking place in the seven seals. 
Um, and, and, and we see the, this is the beginning here. Like the opening of the seven seals is actually the beginning of God's complete just justice over the world. And then we move into verse two and we see, uh, I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice. Uh, and, and again, like a King historically has often has a herald. A herald was one who was like the one who made the proclamations and pronouncements on the King's behalf. I think about the movies, um, where you have the hear ye, hear ye, and they come out and they've got like their little scroll, they're reading the King and the King's like over there drinking his little tea, right? Like, yes, this is a very Westernized view of it, but like, think about that. Like you have a spokesperson who is on behalf of the King, who's reading out his edicts. Which tells us something significant is about to happen. And so then in verse 4, you see kind of a really key part of the narrative happens. The, the angel, the herald comes and he announces and um, John begins to weep in verse 4 because who is worthy to open the seal and no one is found. This is this reference um, really back to the garden, uh, Genesis 3, back to Genesis 12 um, and God calling Abraham out and enacting redemptive history into motion of who is worthy to redeem all of mankind from their sin. It's not Abraham. It's not Moses. It's not David. There's no one worthy. No one is able to do this. And, And so John weeps because no one is able to open the scroll. But then one of the elders comes to him and says, weep no more. And there's this incredible imager here. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. And the, uh, there's almost this trace right there of redemptive history from Judah, the lion of Judah, the root of David, from David, descended down from David. He has conquered. He can open the scroll. And so there's this imagery of the strength of Jesus, this messianic title of a lion, a lion of Judah, uh, the one who does rule and reign, the one who is worthy to open the scroll, the one who has overcome. He is able to open the scroll, the lion of Judah, this power that's symbolized in there. But then in verse 6, You look and immediately there is also the lamb uh, standing as though it had been slain. And so you have these pictures of Jesus here, the lion and the lamb, both pointing to Christ, the strength of the lion, but also the lamb who was the perfect sacrifice. Um, Think about Leviticus where there was a special sacrifice of a pure animal was needed um, to pay for the wrongdoing of our sins, which symbolized the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make, always pointing to Christ, the lamb, the symbol of sacrifice, of payment for sins, the symbol of redemption. There in verses four, five, and six, you have the lament of John because no one is able to open the scroll. And immediately the lion of Judah and the lamb in both of these verses, the one who is able to open the scroll. Um, And then the scroll is opened and there's some more imagery there with seven horns, seven eyes. What's going on there, Will? Yeah, again, like we're playing off of the lion and the lamb um, who is slain, right? So the, it, it, it is like it's a, it's a reference back, reference, I guess, forward to um, the uh, beasts in Revelation, the dragon of the beasts in Revelation 12 and 13. Um, but in order to highlight the stark contrast, like in the way that the beast is trying to um, bring about um, this slavery and this oppression upon uh, the people um, and, and trying to really crush uh, good and allow evil to overtake the uh, we see here the 
lamb of God, who is actually the opposite of that, that he's going to be, uh, that he is omnipotent, that he is, uh, the one who is present with his people and that, um, is going to judge the wicked and judge the, um, those who are not going to trust and treasure Jesus. And I think like when we think about, um, the, I mean, we could, we could trace seven horns, seven eyes and trace the four living creatures, right? Like, but ultimately what this is drawing us into is each holding a harp in golden bowls, verse eight of incense, which are, for, are the prayers of the saints. This is really just like a, a moment of worship of who Jesus is, uh, and how humans and, uh, how us both on heaven and earth are able to come before the God before, uh, and just, and offer up, this is who you are and this is who we are and we need you. One of my favorite scriptures is, is the throne room in Isaiah six, right? Like where you see, oh man, no one is worthy to come before your presence. Only you, God, uh, are deserved to be worshiped. Like cleanse my mouth of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And I think like that's the posture of worship that mm. we really see here is yeah. like, as we see the lament of John of who can open the scroll, it's a realization that like no one's worthy except for Jesus. Yeah. Which I think is the place that we go in application from this text. It, it really verses nine through 14 show us what is the, correct response in recognizing the rule and reign of Christ, recognizing the throne room, recognizing what Jesus had done, that he is the lion and the lamb. You end in worship. There's these three songs that that play out here. One is just, it says it's a, this new song, uh, that Jesus has done something new, that he is doing something new, that he has conquered death and sin and evil. And then there's this song, wor- worshiping the lamb who was slain and worshiping him who sits on the throne, that Jesus is the one who is slain and Jesus is the one who sits on the throne. It, it recognizes recognizes his humanity and his divinity in both of these songs. And and the response in verse 14 of the four living creatures said, amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. I think for me, there's something in these verses to just recognize and then to also call me into worship the way that these verses call us into worship to say, what does it look like just to continually in all of our life, all of our life as worship, our prayers as worship, our actions as worship, continually be worshiping the one who sits on the throne and the one who has sacrificed the lamb that was slain. Um, and, and just to live life in this posture of worship continually. Anything else for you, Will, on application there? No, just like, just to add upon that, dude, because I think that's spot on, right? Is like, I mean, so much of, like, that's, that's something for me that I love is like worship is actually a posture. It's a posture of our life to realize like, oh, we really do need to be desperate and dependent, right? Like Mm. we really do need to say, oh man, like God, I am weak, like, but you're strong. Like you're actually using me to oppose the proud. And like, that's, that's such a different view from, um, what the world teaches us on a daily basis of like, wake up, crush, Mm. be the stud that you were designed to be. And it's like, oh, actually (laughs) you're not. Yeah. And I am like, even like John being able to be in the midst of the throne room or, and that's something cool that I just love too, is like the 12, 24 elders is like 24 elders have a place in the story. Um, 
but they're so insignificant that Mm. we don't know who they are because the focus is upon Jesus. Like that's what it's about. It's like, that's one of the things I love about VG is like how, man, we're just trying to lead people into everyday life worshiping God so that they would know themselves well and that they would know God well. Because ultimately, in order to know God, I think it was Augustine who said this, uh, but you need to know yourself in the depths of your sin because then you'll be able to experience the great riches of Christ. Mm. Our significance is found actually in our insignificance and in his true significance. Such good stuff today, Will. Thanks for diving in to the pod with us, whether you are at the gym, uh, cleaning the house, driving the car, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. We hope this helps you feel equipped, encouraged, and ready to walk through the text with your group this week. As always, do your own prep. Let the Spirit lead you and know that you are the one who is sent by God this week to your family, to your school, to your work, to your coffee shop, to the gym, and to soccer practice, wherever your prayer watch community might be and where whatever God invites you into this week where you are sent to be the living proof of our loving God. We love you all. We'll catch you next time on The Text Lab.